For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Know thyself. That's a small but incredibly impactful instruction from the philosopher Socrates. What Socrates means is that you should know your own soul. You should know who you are. And as modern Americans, we spend a good deal of time and energy trying to figure this out. Maybe you've taken a Myers-Briggs personality test or an Enneagram personality assessment. I'm a proud INTJ, a proud Enneagram 3. Often in high school, a guidance counselor might give a student who's not sure where they want to go to school or what they want to study, some sort of assessment that will tell them what kind of vocations they're sort of tending towards. When both Father David and I were going through the ordination process of becoming priests, we both had to take psychological evaluations, and somehow we both passed. (laughs) See, the reason these personality tests are so interesting and important is that they help us better understand how we're wired, and based on that, we can understand what it means for us to flourish as we go with the grain of how it is that God made us. The problem, however is that sin often keeps us not only from knowing God, but also from knowing ourselves. It alienates us from ourselves so that we end up like St. Paul in Romans 7, where ourselves become a mystery even to us. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. In the philosopher Aristotle's book, The Nicomachean Ethics, I've been reading a lot of Greek philosophy lately, if you can't tell, He defines virtue as a habit of soul that's located between two vices. There is to every virtue a vice of deprivation and a vice of excess. For example, we can all agree that bravery or fortitude is a good thing. It's a virtue, right? It's the the virtue of being willing to endure tough things for a loved object. We can see this in a soldier who's willing to go to war out of love for his family and his community, or a student who might be willing to stand up to a bully on behalf of their friend. So bravery is a virtue. But the vice of deprivation would be when someone lacks enough bravery to make a stand when they should. It's someone who runs away. It's someone who can't rise to the occasion. This vice of deprivation we often call cowardice. On the other hand, there's a vice of excess with bravery. When someone's maybe a little too brave, this is the problem with Rowan, our youngest child. A little too brave, a little too willing to jump off the skateboard. This is someone who foolishly rushes into every conflict without considering the wisdom of engaging in that conflict. And so we might call this vice of excess rashness. So the goal is to hit that perfect middle spot between excess and deprivation where we become brave in all the right ways, in all the right situations, while avoiding cowardice and rashness. Now, last week I told you a story about how I had gone to confession, and the priest stopped me about halfway through as I was detailing each sin in a way that sound, made me sound as bad as I possibly could be. And he told me that God, the God he represents is not judging me, but is forgiving me. So in that moment, I was struggling with a vice of excess, a vice called scrupulosity, where we're overly critical of ourselves. This is a risk with my particular personality type. The virtue that I should be aiming for, that we should all be aiming for, is honesty in our self-examination. This can be hard. 
St. James tells us of the man who goes up to a mirror and he sees himself and then he walks away and totally forgets what it is that he looks like. This, is, I think, is a much more common experience for us than we would like to admit. It's hard to get an accurate view of ourselves. So last week, we talked about the solution to the vice of excess in this regard, the, the solution to the vice of scrupulosity, is to remember your baptismal identity, to remember that you're a child of God and that nothing can take that away from you. So if somebody's scrupulous, that's exactly the kind of counsel I would give them. This week, I want to talk about the vice of deprivation, which is laxity, which is an easy way to give into the greater sin of pride. And I think it's true that, you know, last week when I was explaining to you my scrupulosity problems, you maybe didn't resonate with that because maybe you tend towards laxity. Or maybe if you tend towards laxity, or maybe those of us who tend towards scrupulosity don't quite understand the problem of tending towards laxity. It really depends on how you're wired as to which end of the spectrum you kind of naturally fall. And it may also be true that different seasons of your life kind of push you one direction or the other. But any good medicine always cures an imbalance by helping us supply what's lacking. And the same is true when we have spiritual maladies. So these feasts that we've been celebrating the past two weeks, the Feast of Christmas and the Feast of Epiphany, are reminders of what God has done for us. And now, the Sundays after Epiphany, we're reminded of what our response should be to God in thanksgiving for all the things that he's done for us in the precious incarnation that brought about our salvation. Now, our epistle reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans is one of the most theologically dense books of the Bible that you'll ever read. I was once at a church growing up where the pastor preached verse by verse through the book of Romans, and it took him over five years to get through it. I'm not going to do that to you because I, don't, I believe that the Geneva Convention's ban on cruel and unusual punishment is a good thing. But that does tell you how rich and deep the theology of the book of Romans is, that you can spend that long going through a book like that. The first eight chapters of Romans, St. Paul delves into the mystery of our salvation through Christ. In chapters 9 through 11, he, he explores the implications of our salvation of the Christ event in relation to the nation of Israel. And then starting in chapter 12 with what we read this morning, his shift is to focus on ethics. How should we then live in light of the great mystery of our salvation? And the first thing he tells us is exactly the first thing that we commit to doing in the Eucharistic canon. So when we celebrate Holy Communion, the first two or three paragraphs of the Eucharistic prayer are all about the sacrifice that Christ made for us. And then we say, and here we offer and present unto thee, O God, ourselves, our souls and bodies. And then we quote Romans chapter 12, to be a living sacrifice. So this is the first thing that Paul says. Our whole lives should be centered around being living sacrifices. But there's a second command that he gives here that is often overlooked. We don't talk about it as much. We talk a lot about being living sacrifices, and we should. But in verse 3, Paul's second instruction is that no one should think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Instead, we should think soberly or think rightly. And that may initially sound like a trite, trite instruction. How is this different from what all those personality tests should do? Is Paul saying I should go take a Myers-Briggs, you know, make sure I understand who I am? The answer is that we have to be aware not just of how we're wired, so a Myers-Briggs test is a good thing, but also who we are in God's economy. We have to know that so that we can judge ourselves rightly. So we all feel that pull towards pride, 
And the problem is that pride makes us unable to see things as they are. We inflate our own self-importance when we struggle with pride. And so the solution is a kind of sober thinking of the self. According to St. Paul in Romans, this accurate form of self-assessment is not something you can get from a personality test. It's a Christian grace that's gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about something much deeper than Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or a vocation test. He's saying that we have to remember what we've been saved from. Who were we without God? And even now that we've been baptized, we have to accurately see ourselves in the present. Is the good that we do really as good as we often make it out to be? Are we accurately assessing the impact of our sins, or do we downplay their gravity as a form of self-justification? The more clearly that we see ourselves the more clearly we should see a need for, our, for a savior. But also in this sober thinking, this humble way of examining ourselves, we see a great model towards holiness. Who's the greatest saint to ever live? We can't say Jesus because he's, he's technically not a saint since he's God. The answer is Mary. And why is Mary the greatest saint? She's thought of highly not because of her wealth or her status or her power, but her humility So you can think about the great Magnificat, which we pray every day at evening prayer. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden, for behold, from henceforth, all generations shall call me blessed. And what the mother does, the son does also. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, Jesus instructs, for I am meek and lowly in heart. So what is humility? What is it that we're striving to do? I would argue it's deeper than simply letting someone go first or go ahead of us. That can still be an occasion for pride. Look at me standing in the back of the church potluck line. I'm the most humble person here. No, humility is when our salvation, the fact that we have been saved, befuddles and puzzles us. When we have to ask, what does God want with a wretch like me? It's the heart of the prayer of humble access that we pray right before receiving the Eucharist. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Yet he feeds us anyways because his property is always to have mercy. What a mystery. What grace, what unmerited favor. If we understand that that's what we receive, how can we harbor pride in our hearts? How can we think of ourselves as self-sufficient, as independent? How can we look at ourselves as anything other than a beggar who's found bread and is pointing out to other beggars where the good stuff is? And so it's very important that we remember our baptisms, just like we talked about last week, that it's baptism that shapes who we are. We've been saved from sin, from destruction, from ourselves. But also this means that we're saved for holiness, a standard that we regularly fall short of. It's also important, I think, to remember that in baptism, the recipient is entirely passive. This is why I love baptizing babies. They don't do anything to get there, right? Baptism is something that happens to us. It's not something that we do. You've been saved not by your own doing, but by the movement of the Holy Spirit through the sacraments of his church. And so we remember our baptism, but also we should continually return to the Holy Scriptures. St. Gregory the Great, who lived in the five to six hundreds, says that Scripture is always a mirror to the reader. 
No matter where you are in your spiritual development, even if you're not a Christian, you can find yourself in Scripture, and Scripture will show you who you are more honestly than any personality test ever will. So spend time in the Word. And finally, it's really good to sit with yourself in prayer and do the work of self-examination. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you who you are. And remember that no matter how great the sin that you might discover there is, God's grace is always greater. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.